Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, this is Annie and Kim. Yes. (laughs) On this Saturday morning, and it's getting increasingly close to... uh, Christmas, and I noticed that uh, last week when Dr. Noel Purcell was talking to us, he had he was very discreet. He said, "Happy holiday season," which I thought was a great way. That's of, nice. Yeah, it's very inclusive. But for all of us people who have a family and uh, who who are obliged to collect up uh, presents and give them, which I must say I do like having a Christmas giving. I mean, a, a gift giving excuse because I quite like. It's the only time I go into shops. And it's, it really is. It's like free entertainment into the par- in the park, you know, to see all this work that people have put in together to... Uh, like, if you go to particular places, it's artists have put together products that people can give with great sincerity because <laughs> they're such elegant uh, um, and beautiful thoughts that uh, have come out of their minds. I, do, I just think that's really nice. I like the idea every year... But what ends up happening is that it gets too late, not enough time, and you just end up buying something. Some crap. Some crap. (laughs) Because you don't have time to be thoughtful and think it out. (laughs) What, you don't hang on the expression of um, excitement and gratitude when you give the present? Apparently I don't, which probably (laughs) makes me a terrible person. I don't think so. Anyway, you're on Solidarity Breakfast. That's enough of that. I'm sure everyone's having plenty of Christmas cheer or holiday cheer. Enforced. Enforced. And then there's all the people who are working who will just be tired, I should imagine. But anyway, there's uh, always something to be gained from uh, general uh, scurry and hurry because humans uh, do like a bit of a good time. So... Ah, it's an excuse to take a little bit of a rest if you're lucky enough to be able to. Now, what have we got on the program? What have we got on the program? I went to the Eureka Medal Ceremony in uh, Ballarat, December the 3rd. Uh, it was a long day, had by all. but Because uh, you got a medal, didn't I you? Did. So I just interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so proud. Do I get to see your medal? I yeah, want to yeah. see it. I, I'm going to um, inscribe it. And uh, the, one of the things that Joe Toscano said was that uh, you should sign your letters from he- here on out as uh, E-A-M and completely screw with people's brains. That's a good idea. <laughs> I think that's the best thing. Anyway, I'm incredibly proud, but uh, I mean, I'm completely nonplussed. But anyway, 
for the people that uh, nominated me and then the people who said, yes, you're deserving. I just, it's a combination of the whole of this long, hard year, I'll have to say. And then you went up and recorded it, which is what you do. Yeah, which is what <laughs> I do. Anyway, but what I've done is uh, put a little, I mean, it's not the complete ceremony, but uh, there are some nice tasty bits and so we're sharing that with you guys out there today. So there's the intro and then there's a couple of speeches. So don't feel put out if your speech isn't in there. It's just that there's only a certain amount of time and perhaps we might be able to play some of that over the summer season. Uh, and uh, then uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Dr Cassandra Goldie from ACOS. Yes, um, we're going to be talking about Centrelink um, and some of the, the data matching scheme with the Australian Taxation Office that is collecting a whole bunch of people who've not done anything wrong and um, saying that they owe a certain amount of money before Christmas. Yeah, scaring the shit out of people, basically. And uh, later on, we, uh, we're we going to be talking to Dr... No, no. He probably too many is, doctors. Too many doctors. He probably is a doctor, I don't probably. know. But Humphrey, Humphrey McQueen. But of course, he doesn't uh, have to blow his horn. Everybody else will blow it. For him. Anyway, he's got things to say about tax also and also about uh, the probable um, f- false notion that there will be a Trump-led recovery in the US of A, <laughs> which mm. is not very surprising, really. Unemployed? Underemployed? Receiving Social Security? Getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink? The Australian Unemployed Workers' Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our National Advocacy Hotline on 03 83 It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. That's right. Stand up for your rights. We have rights, do we? <laughs> we have rights, that's right. We keep reminding them. Yeah. yeah. How dare you? <laughs> anyway, like I said, uh, let's go to Eureka uh, Medal Ceremony. This was December the 3rd. It was right in the middle of uh, around Bakery Hill, which is beside McDonald's. And uh, we did hear that from one of the receivers of the uh, Eureka Medal that, uh, in fact, the historic buildings that... Uh, McDonald's is in was only saved because of lots and lots of people insisting that the buildings needed to be saved and it was the very first time in McDonald's history that they had to uh, build their whatever you call it I think they some I think I call it a restaurant restaurant which yeah. is a bit much <laughs> and their restaurant in a historic building there you go. So, you know, I thought that was a point of interest. I do remember years ago going and uh, living in Ballarat for a year and discovering that that's where, Baker, uh, that's where the big meeting was, you know, because that's where the 10,000 came and that's where they burnt their uh, licences and uh, uh, vowed allegiance to each other. And I can remember being completely bemused that uh, the symbolism of McDonald's being on Bakery Hill. <laughs> it's just pretty extraordinary. Anyway, well, let's go there. It's December the 3rd. We're on Bakery Hill in Ballarat and it's before the uh, ceremony, before the awarding of the Eureka Medals. 
G'day, I'm from 3CR. Can you tell me why you're here today? Well, to commemorate Eureka Uprising. Have you been here before for this? Yes. Why is it important to you? Oh, many, many reasons. Um, to remember, it's the first uprising of free white people in Australia and it sort of gets more publicity than all the other uprisings. <laughs> Do you want to tell me why you're here today? Well, mainly because uh, I've got a Eureka Australia Day medal to receive that. I haven't really... What's your name? Philip. Philip okay. Bull. And um, I hadn't really... This wasn't one of the big interests in terms of my involvement um, in progressive politics. Um, so that's basically why. I mean, I'm proud and happy to be here and it'll be interesting to do, get involved in some of the activities. Um, but in terms of... And in terms of the struggle of the miners for freedom and for the vote and to confront tyranny, I mean, I'm all in favour of that. What's your sort of work? What do you do? Well, I was a teacher, but I've retired now. I do some emergency teaching. Uh, but in terms of progressive politics? Well, my involvement was with the union, and then it's in local things in Warnable, so if there are issues to do with... Uh, first people with the, the, the local Aborigines, if there are local social issues to do with uh, strikes against government policies that uh, are unjust and unfair, I'd get involved with them. But uh, mainly in the past it would have been my involvement in the union. Which union? The Australian Education Union, then before that the VSTA and the TTUV and, and so on. Have you got any involvement in the uh, Belfast Coastal... Uh, group that's... The issue that's going on now, no I haven't directly, uh, I suppose in, if they had a demonstration I'd be there because I, I'd go swimming down at Kalani and uh, I just think a lot of these places are being abused by people who've got a lot of money and power so that any if I knew about any demonstration or action I'd get involved but I'm not directly involved in that committee but you can see that it has a connection to what we're doing here today. Oh, of course. Of course, it's just, again, the abuse of... Well, these people have power, so of course they're going to use it or abuse it from our point of view. And uh, they're messing up the environment down there. And um, I guess it's a different level of protest uh, from what happened in 1854. Totally different. People aren't at the point where they feel they have to take up arms to defend themselves. Uh, they can express themselves. But whether they can achieve as much as those people did, I don't know. In some ways, maybe things... Now, we're, we're well off. It's, we're a wealthy country. We've been very lucky. We're part of the 20% of the world that, that lives pretty well. Uh, but I think we're pretty complacent... And in a way, those people in 1854 had a lot more energy and will for social reform than maybe we have. And yet there are things here that we really should be doing something about. Tell me about why you're here today. Oh, you're going to pass the baton, are you? <laughs> we're here because we're concerned about the direction Australia's going. They've forgot, if, you, if those who don't remember history are doomed to repeat it, and so we're here to remind people 
of what happened 162 years ago that everybody's forgotten about. And the next revolution will be bloody a lot worse than this, this, that one. <laughs> Today? Well, firstly, I'm from Brisbane. I try to get down here every year to uh, come down here to pay my uh, respects uh, to the fallen uh, gold diggers that were murdered by the British back in 1854. And, and also to pledge my oath of allegiance, which is the, uh, to our great flag, and uh, participate and be involved in the Republican uh, uh, issue because I'm a devout Republican and also I stand for what these guys stood for and, and died for. So, uh, Well, you've come a long way. That, it yeah. shows that it's important. Oh, it's very important to me because unfortunately nothing's changed in Australia since the Eureka Stockade. I mean, nothing. We're still under British rule. Our head of state's not an Australian and... Okay, certain uh, uh, advancements and improvements were made post Eureka Stockade, but it wasn't enough. Oh, and also McDonald's is on Bakery Hill. <laughs> that's that's a cop out. That is an act of treason. It is a serious. That's what Australia, my country now, has become so heavily Americanised. Now I really don't know it's Australian anymore. That's why I also come here uh, to Im- immerse myself in a bit of Australian history. And as a matter of fact, I urge all Australians, particularly school kids, students, to read Peter Fitzsimons' book called Eureka, The Unfinished Revolution. It should be mandatory reading by every student because the Eureka Stockade is not taught in schools. It's, it's a sad fact. I come down here. Um, why are you here? Why am I here? I'm here um, to support the spirit of Eureka, the spirit of fight back, which also has a connection, not the same struggle, but a connection to the spirit of resistance of the original Indigenous owners of the land, the Rutherong of this area, Um, and also to remind people that uh, the Eureka flag is the flag of the union movement and working class struggle. It was always a multicultural flag, uh, as in people of many nations, many nationalities, many races, um, resisting uh, oppression by the rich uh, in the interests of all working class people. So you've been carrying one of the flags? Yes, I was carrying one of the flags. This is the first time that husband and I are doing this and uh, we had to sort of prepare for all kinds of weather <laughs> and I didn't realise but when the wind picks up, it picks up the flag and it makes it heavy. It's hard work but it's nothing compared to... Um, what really happened uh, at the Eureka Rebellion. People died for our rights and liberties and I think it's only a small price to pay to carry a heavy flag. <laughs> about 50 at the dawn ceremony, about 30, 40 on the march and then about 100 here and then it slows down to the dinner. Very few people have the audacity to do the whole 18 hours. Yeah, but this, this is, a, this is a, a city that uses the symbols of Eureka but doesn't celebrate and acknowledge the sacrifice which was made 162 years ago. And in this city today, we are the only people, apart from a short ceremony at the Museum of Australian Democracy at around one o'clock, that are actually celebrating this day and commemorating this day. And it is really shameful. For the last 10 years, we've been agitating to have the Eureka flag placed on the main flagpole on the Ballarat City Hall to such an extent that 
we intervened in the electoral process a few months ago, um, but unfortunately we failed. So it's, it's just indicative of what people call contested history. This is not contested history. Eureka is not contested history. The facts are very simple. It is a rebellion which was based on four main principles. And these principles, as those of you who are at the, at the um, dawn ceremony will remember, are incorporated in the Eureka Oath, which we will do collectively at the end. And these principles are very simple. We, we the people, we, not white Anglo-Saxon males, not Martians, but we, everyone, we. And these people who today think that the Eureka flag is some type of racist flag need to look at the Eureka Oath. We, the people, this is an extraordinary oath, 1854. Men and women and children from all corners of the globe, economic refugees, political refugees from the revolutionary wave which swept Europe from 1848. Men and women of all colours, of all religions, of all languages. We, us, we, like we are here today. Men and women of all colours, of all races, of all religions, of all cultures, of all languages. We swear by the Southern Cross. Why the Southern Cross? Most of the people on the diggings had come from the Northern Hemisphere. They had come to make a new life in this land. It was a tent city, Ballarat, and all the diggings were tent cities which sprang up overnight. So if you haven't got an iPad, or a telephone, or a radio, or a television set, you entertained yourselves. And when you walked out of your tent to have a piss, you looked up and there was the Southern Cross. And you cannot see the Southern Cross in the Northern Hemisphere. So the fact that they incorporated the Southern Cross in the oath is a fact that they acknowledge the new land they were in. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other. In an era, in an era where to be a trade unionist is to be a criminal, where legislation is passed through Parliament which gives trade unionists less rights than somebody who's charged with importing 100 kilograms of cocaine or heroin to the city, you can see what's happening in this country. And they understood that solidarity is the key to success. And as trade union membership plummets for a variety of reasons, both structurally and politically, we are seeing all the ills of the old society coming. Raids in South Australia, people not paying properly, uh, my friend Brett from the Trades Hall, who will speak in a few minutes, um, tells me that 47% of under 21-year-olds working in Ballarat are not paid the award wage. So it's everywhere. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight. Now I'll give you a little, a little uh, experience. A few years ago when Mr Fitzsimmons put out his Eureka book, and he does it by paying researchers. He rang me, he wanted me to proofread it. And I said, I'm too busy. But he finally convinced me after a few calls. And I proofread it. And what had his researchers done? They had used the Eureka Oath 
which was promulgated through the schools, through the universities, through the institutions where they removed the fight. There was no fight in the Eureka Oath. It says, we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and our rights and liberties. They removed the fight. So it's about direct action. So we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. These were men and women from around the globe. John Joseph, the first man who was tried for high treason, who is said fired the fatal shot that killed, I think, the deputy commander of the uh, troops, Captain Wise, was a black man from New York. There was another gentleman from Kingston, another black man from Kingston, Jamaica. Sorison was a Jew. Edward Fonan, who was one of the pikemen who was shot from East Prussia, a 20-year-old lemonade seller on the goldfield, a Jew. So it's about internationalism. People came together because of the oppression they felt at that particular point in time as we are coming together today. So if you want to talk to people about the, about the Eureka, say, this is the oath, this encapsulates everything. And in my opinion, the Eureka Oath is one of the most powerful, powerful statements made by a group of people in a few words that we have ever seen written in the history of the world, not just this nation, in the history of the world. So at the end of the proceedings, the youngest member usually recite, leads us in the recital of the Eureka Oath. We normally have children, but we don't have any this week. Now, the other important reason we come here is we like to honour people who will never be honoured for their activism. It's a funny thing if you receive an Order of Australia or something in, in Australia, and I've had a few calls in the past. It's a funny thing, a funny thing. You can only receive it on Invasion Day, the 26th of January, or on the Queen's birthday. So how could a Republican accept an honour? And I've known many people during my 50 years as an activist. I did start at 15. I started young. I must have been one of these um, radicalised youth they talk about today. Um, I've known many people who've done a great deal for their community, who've fought all their lives, who've been ignored, ignored, who've died deaths that have been ignored. So we want to reward people. I know it's nothing, just a little medal, but we would like to publicly acknowledge the contribution these activists have made to this society through a lifetime of struggle. Most of the people you'll, you'll see today receive an award you wouldn't have heard of. You don't know them. A few you will, but most you won't. And that's the key to being a successful activist. It's those people who provide the muscle and the grunt and the intellect and the time and the money and the effort to ensure that change continues to occur in our society. So let's stop me talking. Now, the first person I'd like to call up to receive a medal is Mr. Chris Mills. Come to the Sticky Carpet Film Screening and 3CR Party on Friday the 23rd of December, 6.30 to 9.30pm at the Backlot Studios under the overpass at 65 Hague Street, Southbank. 3CR's Music Matters, Burning Vinyl and Let Your Freak Flag Fly celebrate the 10th anniversary of Mark Butcher's film Sticky Carpet. 
featuring interviews and scorching live performances by the Dirty Three, The Stabs, Bored, Sailors, Love of Diagrams and more, the film documents the raw and vital Melbourne music scene in 2006 and includes 3CR's own Matt Gleeson and Michael Smith. Also screening is an experimental short film shot around 3CR 20 years ago by Florence Ron. Join us to celebrate our history and our future. Doors and Bar open from 6.30, screening starts at 7.30. Tickets at the door from $5. All proceeds help keep Radical Radio on air. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. You are indeed and it's Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. And uh, there is actually another snippet with uh, from the Eureka Medal uh, in. Ceremony, wonderful, which was from uh, December the third, celebrating the or honouring the Eureka Stockade or the big meeting that happened and is considered to be the uh, beginnings of wide Australian pushback from the um, uh, imperialist powers. I'd have to say working class uh, pushing back from the boss class, which finally led led to uh, working men uh, getting into Parliament and getting representation through the vote, which is interesting. It's a dim, dark past. You know, the you, see, you don't you don't actually get anywhere by playing by nice. the rules <laughs> or nice. <laughs> don't stop playing nice. That's really funny because there's this great story about uh, when uh, the because uh, the first Labor government. Uh, was uh, happened in Australia in the world actually, and uh, I uh, it was first uh, the first federal government in Australia was in Melbourne, and I read this great little story about how the house is divided in two, and uh, when the conservatives came into the uh, chamber, they got really upset because uh, those that riffraff is sitting in our seats. <laughs> The butchers, bakers, and the candlestick makers—they're sitting in our seats. Anyway, we'll we'll just uh, hear a little bit more about the Eureka Medal because there are a couple of really poignant speeches, interesting speeches. Now, when Ellen and I first came to Melbourne, and we were trying to uh, start some, you know, anarchist activity, nineteen seventy-six. Our first recruit was Phil. I don't know why he joined us, but he did. Now, Phil's a country boy from Warrnambool, and as you know, the further out you get, the more difficult it is to be an activist because you can be anonymous in a big city. You know, you can do things and nobody really knows, but in a country town, everybody knows what the bulls are doing, especially where they live, which is outside Warrnambool. Have you been banned yet? No. No, all right. Only in Camperdown. Only in Camperdown. So, look, Phil and Mary have been outstanding activists for many years. Um, I'm very proud to have known them. And these are the type of people who think, make up a movement, initiate change, work tirelessly in their community to make change, but find that uh, it can be hard work, but continue. So I'd like to thank you both. And I, unfortunately, we've only got one medal for you to share, but you can put both your names on the back. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for the kind words. I'm proud to receive uh, the medal. What I wanted to talk about, just a few things, but mainly how we really need to reclaim 
the radical spirit of the Eureka rebels and uh, their, their fight uh, against tyranny and for the liberties and freedoms that they wanted to defend. And I thought of a, just two things. Uh, in 1854, about 150 people, and uh, Anne will correct all the mistakes I make, I guess, later, but took up arms to defend their freedom. That's in 1854. And a few years after, there was political representation for them and the miners' licence fee was made more reasonable. They achieved some of their aims, many of them. And yet, 150-odd years later in Australia, in 210, some of the most, a handful of the most obscenely wealthy people in Australia got on the bed at the back of a flatbed truck to demonstrate for their arrogated right not to be taxed. They achieved their aim, pity the poor billionaire, and they deposed a Prime Minister in the process. In 1854, not far from here, is the Presbytery of St Olypius, and the priest in charge there in 1854, if I'm not wrong, was a gentleman called uh, Patrick Smythe, and he worked tirelessly during the uprising to provide comfort and security and uh, aid to the miners who'd been wounded and injured and were dying. And I think it's uh, said that he gave shelter, sanctuary to Peter Layla after the uprising. And yet 119 years later, the sanctuary provided by St Olypius was to the notorious pedophile Jared Ridsdale and the Sergeant Schultz of the Vatican, George Pell. How times change. So if there's any time that's more appropriate that we should be trying to reclaim that radical spirit, it's now. I mean, there are so many things you could go through and, and list about our treatment of the First Peoples of Australia the current refugee policy, the wages gap, the falling numbers of unionists, uh, the neo-colonial globalism, our lack of action on climate change, etc. Keeping these flames of freedom alight requires eternal vigilance and against the ill winds unleashed by the voracious greed and unbridled lust for power of the ruling classes. So the struggle continues. We do indeed need to reclaim the radical spirit of the Eureka rebels. Thanks. Now I'd like to call on John, uh, for Sister Rita Hayes. And I'd also like to call on uh, Jacob to come over please. Irwin. Irwin. Right. And, and who is it? Look, uh, we've actually had a number of nominations uh, for Sister Rita Hayes, who was a Ballarat identity. And Sister Hayes 
had worked tirelessly all her life for people who found themselves in difficult situations. And when the West Papuan refugees came to this city, she extended her hand to them. And we were quite saddened to hear that after she'd actually been awarded the medal, um, she actually ha had died suddenly and unexpectedly. So I'd like these three people to tell us about Sister Hayes. You'll go first. Yeah, we put Sister Rita up for this award and uh, she hesitantly accepted only, only on if it could highlight some of her causes. I didn't know Sister Rita all that well. All of those who did know her here knew her better than me. But I first met her in about the year 2000. It was down trades hall, a few things to get done in those days. Uh, she was there in the back of the hall packing up parcels for East Timor was just at the height of their crisis over there. She was putting food parcels together, doing the donkey work, bit of medicine, bit of can this, bit of can that. They were sent over to her comrades over there and they distributed. After that I met Sister Rita at just about virtually every community rally up here in Ballarat. Whether it was our three month vigil every Friday afternoon up at the Rotunda, before the Iraq invasion, Sister Rita was there and she'd bring young people with her from Loretto and, and a few other colleges around Ballarat. I went to visit Sister Rita down at the convent or whatever. What she had in, in her front door, the big poster say, make an abbot proof fence. Yeah. She reminded, she epitomised what that great old communist, ex-communist Atheist Philip Adams said on Not Life Live once on ABC Radio. They were talking about the old nuns or something, and he said they're about the only lefties left nowadays. Well, so that was Sister Rita to T-Bone. Well, since found out she did so much more, I didn't know what about. She started up a house up here called Hazley House. That was to keep young girls out of Wynn Layton. They'd already been property house to keep young boys out of Tirana. She, she did, she was major in social science. She started up centre care with others up here. She went over to Denver, Colorado to get a master's degree in social science. She was one of the people that started Lifeline, the people that started Grove for the people with mental illness. She helped set up a step family support group. She started up a support group for young, mostly teenage mums. She was part of the multicultural centre. She was part of the refugee support group. One of the last things she did was she's part of the One Humanity Shower Bus. Once again, something practical for the poor people of Ballarat so they get a shower. They're living on the streets. One of the greatest things Sister Rita did uh, was for the West Papuans. Just lately, she encouraged us to, to uh, our group, we've got a group up there called Ballarat Friends of West Papua, and she encourages together with uh, Louise and that to see if we could donate all, all the money from the concert we put together to go to Ronnie Caroni's education, the February of his education up 
in Canberra this time to do his Masters so we can so we can champion that great course of West Papua even further. But anyway, very sadly, she she's uh, left us six weeks ago, and uh, Sister Helen Forbes is here on her behalf to take the. Would you like to say something, Erwin? Yes, uh, thank you. There's um, Sister Rita is really great. Uh, firstly, I was knowledge the the uh, acknowledge the. The indigenous people is in the land of where we're standing at the moment. And I was, um, first of all, Sister Rita is really great for West Papua because six years ago we came here and without any English, we can't speak any English. But with little communication between us and Sister Rita, and we start from June of the West Papua from Ballarat to going down to Melbourne now. You see that uh, the issue of the West Papua is going around the Victoria, and that's the well, the sister is really great with um, with the West Papua as well. Not on the West Papua was a so, someday like Timor and Somalia, and there's um, there's some refugee is working is really great working, and as a West Papua we always pay respect and we call it. The medal is thank you very much, Joe, for this. Mr. Forbes, would you like to say a word or two? Uh, thank, thanks, Joe. Uh, I'm happy to receive this uh, award um, uh, for the life work, really, of Sister Rita Hayes. My one regret is that Rita's not here to enjoy this honour herself. Thank you. Now, I want the two youngest, and I'd pick the two youngest, the one sitting down, you two young folk, would you like to come up here, please? You're going to do the oat? I know. Oi. <laughs> are these your offspring, Annie? Well, one. One, you are, all right. Well, normally we have a 10 or 11 year old doing the oath, but uh, we're short of 10 and 11 year olds today. And I, a bit of Yeah, bring the kids, or the grandkids, I should say. But scanning, scanning the crowd, I thought these are the youngest. Now, do you know the Eureka Oath? You got it there? Well, you can read it off there. So, you've got to do it loudly, and we've got to follow you, okay? Okay. <laughs> we swear by the Southern Cross. We swear by the Southern Cross. To stand truly by each other. Stand truly by each other. And fight to defend our rights and liberties. And fight to defend our rights and liberties. Wonders of the West, the Setting Sun Short Film Festival is calling for entries for its fabulous 2017 festival until the end of January. We're the largest short film festival in the West. We showcase the best films from the West and beyond. This year we're giving away over $5,000 of prizes, including cash. All films screen at the fabulous Art Deco Sun Theatre in Yarraville. If you've got a film no more than 12 minutes long, enter now. All genres accepted. Check out our website, settingsun.com.au, a 3CR supporter. Hey, 
and you're back with Annie and Kim on Solidarity Breakfast. Yes, and we're going to be we're going to be talking to Cassandra Goldie, who is the Chief Executive of the Australian Council of Social Services. Thanks for coming and speaking to us, Cassandra. Good morning. Morning. Uh, we wanted to talk about these debt notices that Centrelink recipients or former recipients are receiving. First, I wanted to ask you, how did this automated compliance system come to be? Well, we've known for some time that the federal government was planning to uh, move to use data matching. So this is um, uh, checking details that people have with the Australian Tax Office with the records that are in the Centrelink system. Um, and um, in the pipeline is a um, billion-dollar exercise to upgrade a very old Centrelink system. Um, and nobody would question the fact that we would want for people accessing Centrelink to have the best available technology so that um, people who are accessing Centrelink um, social security payments um, can have the best kind of accurate information themselves. Anybody who's listening will know that at the moment it is extremely difficult to speak to anybody at Centrelink. Um, we, the stories vary, but the data shows that we've got um, you know millions in calls each year that are not being uh, where people can't even get through. And then when you do get into the system, you still can wait for up to an hour or more before you actually speak to somebody. So you're ongoing. If you're receiving a Centrelink payment, you do have an ongoing obligation to update your information. And this is really hard for people because often people's um, income levels do vary quite a lot. You've got to predict your future income. That's how Centrelink assesses your eligibility. And, of course, your future income can change very unpredictably. Um, we know that many people are now relying on multiple jobs, um, you know, small uh, amounts of money that are received rather than this sort of one predictable pay, you know, um, pay level. So it has been very difficult for people to um, make sure that their information is regularly accurate and on the other hand, of course, Centrelink makes mistakes. Well, the government is now um, using a very aggressive and we believe um, um, completely inappropriate debt collection approach. And we're very alarmed by it, as are the, um, we believe, hundreds of thousands of people who are receiving these kinds of debt notices. It's it's quite clear that what they're doing is applying the same systems that are being used in uh, corporations patent patent their patents. It's all about patents uh, when they're checking to see if there's discrepancies. But like you say, people's lives aren't as uh, regular as that, are they? Well, that's right. And of course, this isn't um, about. Um uh, the high, this is about the high risk of a very automated, aggressive, rigid debt collection process. I mean, from the, the reports we've had in the media, we've got debt notices worth $650 million that have been issued um, out into the public in just the last four months. Um, some of these relate to um, alleged overpayments that date back years to... Mm for example, 2010. In many cases, people 
um, are not receiving Centrelink payments anymore. They didn't even know that there was an um, alleged debt owed, um, and they've only found that because they've happened to log on to the, um, uh, their own online um, my.gov portal and found that there's a debt sitting there um, against them um, with very limited time to pay unless they negotiate a repayment schedule. So uh, we're, we're very alarmed ourselves about the uh, impact that this is having on people. We're not talking about large corporations receiving debt notices here. We're talking about individuals and families who will often be in very um, uh, marginal financial circumstances. You know, many people are struggling to cover their living costs week to week and when you get a notice that says that you have to pay a debt, which you, uh, it's very difficult for you to prove that you don't pay it or that it's, you know, not the correct amount, and then to be told that you've got to pay that within 28 days, um, or you know, further penalties and potentially, as the responsible minister um, said in the media, if you don't pay, you, you will go to jail. We will track you down and you will go to jail. This is completely inappropriate from the um, government agency that's responsible, ultimately, for social security in Australia. This so is they're, about they're criminalising... Yeah, no, but they're criminalising the, the Australian population. Absolutely. Um, we are not a police state, as I have said throughout the week, um, and we need a very humane uh, process in place for when there are mistakes um, at the Centrelink end or where somebody has um, earned more in the future than they had predicted they would, we need a, an appropriate process which is humane and understands the ordinary circumstances of individuals and households um, when they are trying to navigate what is a complex system um, in terms of your eligibility for Centrelink payments. I'm, I wanted to ask you about there seems to be a common theme that people who were employed on contracts or part-time work for a period of time. Centrelink, with this what seems to be quite a crude data matching scheme, seems to assume that you worked and were paid over the whole of the financial year. And <clears throat> based on this, there's been, it sounds like, a lot of false debt. False assumptions. False debts um, sent out. Have you heard about this? Uh, look, absolutely. We've heard that people are disputing that they owe the debts that are being issued against them. Um, the uh, welfare rights services around the country are absolutely under the hammer trying to provide support to people in these circumstances. Um, there are welfare rights services um, in um, most of the capital cities, but of course they themselves have been subject to funding cuts and are under intense pressure when it comes to responding to people often in, who are very distressed and in desperate circumstances. I mean, these debt notices um, have been escalated. We, we're talking 20,000 being issued a week oh um, in God. an automated system. Um, and um, in many cases, we're talking significant amounts of money. We're hearing of figures of you know $11,000 where people are really struggling to understand how that could possibly occur. Um, and the tone of the correspondence, the tone of the responsible minister is that this is a policing matter. It is not a policing matter. This is about um, 
an appropriate assessment um, in, which should ideally be happening in a much more timely way so that where there has been an overpayment because of um, somebody having earned more in a particular period than they had predicted they would, that we can have that regularly updated. Um, now, we're, we're not there. This is about going back six years um, and for the first time alleging that somebody owes a debt. That's unbelievable. So our, Something our, 2010. Our, our, it's just absolutely. ridiculous. Our position is that this needs to cease. Um, underlying this is this is um, a government who announced um, that they were wanting to make significant budget savings. This is about budget measures. Um, we've seen these stories coming out into the media um, over the last week and a half, leading up to um, what's called you know, the MIEFO, which is like a mini budget, which the federal government is announcing on Monday. Now, we'll wait to see what's in that uh, MIEFO mini budget. Um, but in the federal um, election period, uh, the a coalition announced that it was planning to make significant billions in savings in these areas. Um, and we're going, at what cost? Um, this is on, um, in a system where we have... The uh, evidence is clear. We have very low levels of fraud associated with the social security system. Um, the, there are there are journalists and media outlets and some parts of the political uh, class who like to suggest that anybody is getting a Centrelink payment. You know, at the heart of it, you're lazy, uh, you're not meeting your obligations, and you're defaulting the system. That is absolutely. Um, um, not correct and it's deeply misleading. This seems really like, outrageous like, to me as well because we know that people like Rupert Murdoch are avoiding their taxes. We know that there is a huge system of offshore companies that hide their taxes and instead they seem to be trying to... gearing. As well, they seem to be trying to claw it back, as you say, from uh, the people who are the least able to pay it. I was wondering what kinds of rights do people have in terms of appeals? Well, you do have the right to appeal. Um, but of course, um, that's um, a very stressful process for people. Um, the welfare rights services who are outstanding with their um, you know, commitment to try and provide support to people around the country are tiny. Um, and as I say, they've, they've had their own resources you know, um, yeah, yeah. So, cut through funding cuts over yeah. the last... So what you're uh, really saying is time. that this system has to stop, this this approach has to stop. I mean, there are about 800,000 people who are within this uh, unemployed or underemployed system uh, that are being targeted. People who are were on disability uh, payments are quite a, a rigorous a run through where people are being thrown off that and put on to new start when in actual fact anybody with half a brain could see that they should be on a disability pension. So obviously the system is being put in place to attack people who are part of the social security uh, net. But Obviously, it's diverting people's attention from the fact that uh, the government is targeting about 9% of the Australian population when they've actually got a real problem on their hands, which is their own incompetence. Well, look, I think this is very... The strategy is very clear. Um, it goes back, um, certainly most recently, to that 2014 federal budget that was um, designed by the former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, 
um, which was widely rejected by the Australian public as deeply unfair, and we called it on the night of the budget then. Um, the uh, federal government was um, saying we have a big you know, debt and deficit problem. Um, it's not a revenue problem or we don't need to raise more taxes. Indeed, we need to cut taxes. Um, and the big problem is spending. And the government has persistently used a big figure to talk about, um, to suggest that we've got a welfare, welfare blowout of $160 billion plus. Um, what is What is, is factual is that when it comes to... Because most people think when you talk welfare, they think people aren't, who are unemployed. Mm. Um, the majority of the welfare budget is associated with, firstly, the age pension, and, of course, that's a really important um, protective part of our you know, social safety net, um, that if you haven't been able to secure enough superannuation behind you, and there are many people who haven't, um, particularly women, but many people, um, you are going to need an age pension. And we would expect to see that uh, the uh, money going on the age pension growing over time because we're an ageing population. The second big, the biggest area is associated with an important investment in the NDIS, a policy um, that everybody, we thought, um, was supportive of, including the coalition government. These are the areas of so-called real growth in the wel in welfare expenditure, and we should expect to see that, and our question is how we finance that. The area of unemployment benefits is, is contracting as a percentage of GDP um, as we speak. Um, it is not adequate um, at the moment. As you know, ACOS, I hope you know, ACOS and many others have been persistently arguing the unemployment is too low. It's <laughs> yeah. too low. It's $38 a day. Yeah. And we unashamedly continue to repeat that message that it must be increased. The big structural problem we have is there is not enough employment opportunities for people. And as you say, with the, the various changes, both under the previous Labor government and now this government, that has moved more and more people off a more adequate, not generous, but more adequate level of payment, like the disability support pension or the parenting payment, onto Newstart, which has already saved them a lot of money. Many people who are on Newstart, for a range of reasons, will face particular barriers to competing in the open labour market. If you've got significant care responsibilities, if you have a disability, if you have a mental health condition, um, people want to find work. I, I really encourage people who are listening to tell your story about the truth of this. And I, I know that's an ask for people because the ordinary getting by in the week when on the one hand, you're required to be out trying to find work to get your income support. You want to get paid work, but you, you're not getting any interviews. And at the same time, we're now getting, you know, tens of thousands of letters going out every week, um, which are alleging that um, people have these big debts as well. This has to stop. This is deeply um, inhumane. It is creating a huge stress. The mental health implications of this are really significant. Um, it is very worrying that we've got senior ministers um, out in the media making suggestions that people, oh, if you've just got a bit of depression or you've got a bad back, you know, you should be getting off Social Security and getting out there and getting a job. There's plenty of work out there. But on the other hand, we all know that that is not the case. Well, thank you so much, Cassandra. I think that that is a fantastic point. Having 
being unemployed is like a very, very stressful full-time job and it really needs to stop and we need to lift the payments above the poverty line. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for the opportunity. Freedom and safety are two of the most important values shared by our community. As the largest independent human rights organisation for refugees and people seeking asylum in Australia, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre delivers more services on the ground and more free hours of support to where it's needed most. A donation of $20 to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre provides two weeks of food for a family over the holiday season. Please donate now at asrc.org.au or call 1300-DONATE. The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre is a proud 3CR supporter. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and uh, 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 fantastic. We were just talking to Dr Goldie. Cassandra Goldie. Yeah, from ACOS and uh, it's a serious issue. We've got on our hands. It's uh, a federal Liberal government. They should never have been returned. Uh, but something interesting has come up. It was breaking news. It was yesterday in a landmark mark decision. The Federal Court of Australia has told today ruled that was yesterday Minister of Immigration on the question of citizenship for people of refugee background. The minister was found to have unreasonably delayed in making decisions on citizenship applications and was ordered to reconsider the applications of the two applicants in question. This is a major victory. Mm. Yeah. Um, it seems to me, actually, just thinking about it now, the unemployed CFMU refugees are the people that they seem to be torturing and kicking well, as much as they it, can. It's all about uh, diverting people's attention. Although maybe they do hold these ideological perspectives. So maybe they actually believe in uh, that these are the great enemies of their, the society that uh, the uh, boss class lives in. Who knows? Who knows? Well, I didn't CFMU, think they believed in anything, actually. Yeah. The CFMU oh. actually is their enemy because they have the power to fight back. Mm, yeah, well, refugees, uh, kicking people when they're down is really not uh, an appropriate thing to do. Uh, you're on 3CR with Annie and Kim on Solidarity Breakfast. Coming up next is Humphrey McQueen, who's going to talk about why it's probably unlikely that there will be a Trump-led recovery. Oh. <laughs> mm. Wonderful song. Uh, Something has changed. Kate Vigo. Yeah, that's beautiful, isn't it? It's just actually lovely. And on the line, we've got uh, Humphrey McQueen. Hello, Humphrey. How are you? I'm very well. You're both there again this morning. I hear. Yep. Yes. Good morning. You don't morning. think that there's going to be a Trump-led recovery for the U.S. of A? Uh, well, 
it won't be a Trump-led recovery because, uh, well, we're going to talk about that in, in well, we hope in a little bit, in, a, in just a bit of detail. There's obviously been a bit of excitement in the stock market and the, and the mates in Goldman Sachs expect that they're going to be able to do whatever they like again, um, which, of course, is what got them into the mess that they've been in for the last nine years anyway. That's right. Um, so we can't we can't go back there. But as for Mr. Trump himself and his personality and all of that, we can all we we can actually leave all that aside to the trivia merchants. That's exactly and actually right. Look at how capitalism works. Yes, that's a much more. Let's pull up our sleeves yes. and go for it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you do on a Saturday morning. Oh, well, um, well, I know a lot of people, of course, are scurrying around getting breakfast and shopping and things, but fortunately, over the last few years, the 3CR has been able to be podcast. That's right. I've got friends around the country who who tune in on a Saturday afternoon when things have calmed down again. Oh, that's and, good. Yeah. So, nice uh, to hear. It is, it is, and there should be more of it. <laughs> what I want to talk today, as you mentioned in the beginning, was about some of these plans that have been announced for making America great again in the economic sense. And uh, so we'll look at that within the context that we've already mentioned of the blockage to the expansion of capital that's really been pretty much up there now for 10 years. They um, even got a slogan for it. What was it? The CF, what is it? The... Glo- no, the GFC, they, you know, they're so good at it. They have this almost bringing the capitalist system to the brink and all yes. they can think of is get a brand name for it. Yes, yeah, well, where we can go beyond that, of course, is the other thing we did mention earlier in the year and I think we'll do a lot more of next year, I hope, is that it's the 150th anniversary of Das Kapital in September yep. coming up. And what I want to suggest to people is that, you know, this morning and going through this, that by using what Marx offers us uh, there, we can understand why some of these things aren't going to work and the difficulties that they would give rise to if they did work. Um, so, so, so what are the things? What are the things that <laughs> are being put forward as possible? Well, the three things that we need to look at are the plan for the corporate tax cuts. Um, down from, I think, 30-something to 15% is the first one. Um, then um, there's going to be a lot of um, more investment to make jobs, he says, and there's going to be a trade war with China, which is going to create um, Sounds like fun. lots of jobs as well, we're told. Um, well, of course, now, Americans rely on China, so they owe well, China. This, Are they not going to pay is, their debts? Well, well, it's not... Well, there are bigger problems than whether whether they can whether they can get out of the money that the Chinese have put into the bond market. Um, the Chinese might be the ones who lose out of that. Rather I'd than say the Americans, so. You know the way that goes. The the thing I do want to get round to that we won't. You know, that's a side that issue. Sort of mm. Second is the impact that Chinese goods have had on the cost of the one commodity that workers have to sell, which is our labour power, and that can be a real problem for them. I mean, them being the boss class, <laughs> and the workers too, of course. But on the question of tax cuts, we've always got to go back to the key point. Where did the taxes come from? Even if the corporates pay them, where did they get the money to pay them from? Out of us. Yeah. The bosses didn't make it. We did, and they took it from us. So 
that all the taxes are paid by us, whether they're paid directly, like you know, PAYG earners in Australia, or whether they come out of the money that the corporates who do pay tax um, do get around to actually handing over to the tax officers or the Department of Internal Revenue in the US. The only place that extra value can come is from human labour. And it may be very indirect, the way in which it makes its way through the system, but all the taxes um, come out of what we contribute as working people by adding value um, in the workplaces. So we've always got to remember that it's, you know, we, we have produced it all, they've taken some of it away, and in some ways they're made to give it to the government. Sometimes so the government can then stand over us to make us give them even more. Um, but that's the, the underlying point about the whole nature of the taxation system. Um, it occurs to me that this is the same principle as investment when people say, oh, you've got to cut taxes so that companies will invest because it's companies that make jobs. It's like, no, no, it's actually workers' surplus labour that creates jobs. Well, indeed, and we'll get around to seeing why it is capital that takes jobs away. Um, but there are a lot of people, of course, who uh, fed this nonsense that be grateful to the boss because he gave you the job. That's right. And it's a bit like you just described something that reminded me more like uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Well, uh, there's not much... There's not much of the other side of the um, of, of the stealing for the rich to give to the poor going on <laughs> in the world at the moment, um, but the what that leads to a bit is you know the, the big question that Marx gives rise to is within this production of surplus value because that's where the capitalists are able to take this extra from. I mean they take all the surplus value that. The, we're able to produce. What's its surplus to? Well, Marx says there is the absolutely basic things that human beings have to have in order to stay alive. So when we go to work, we, we produce two things. We produce the equivalence of what we need to cover the cost of our wages. And then everything else on top of that is the surplus value. But both for the capitalist and the worker, we have to produce the, you know, um, all of the fundamental things, you know, to be able to cover the cost of all of those. So in the workplace, you've got those those really two important areas where um, the the addition of with the addition of any value is going to take place. Now that becomes important for when we go on to look at the trade war with China. Because you mentioned before you know, um, about the, the whole relationship between, uh, between US uh, monopoly capital and what's been going on in China in the last, say, 25 years since the big expansion got underway. Mm. Now, here, uh, not only is there a lot of US investment in China, yes. um, but... Um, but perhaps more importantly than that, what's been happening, and it's not only from China, I mean, it's from other parts of the world, you know, even parts of the United States itself, where the production of, of all the commodities that used to be made inside the United States 
and then sold to the workers in the United States, most, well, a great deal of that production has now been sent to other parts of the world. Uh, and China's the obvious one of these. And so when Trump talks about having a trade war with the Chinese, this is what he's talking about, that all of these cheap goods, as they're called, flow in and he's going to... Uh, um, claims he's going to put a stop to this. Yeah, but well, then if he starts to try and make them in uh, America, people won't be able to afford to buy them because they don't want to pay people any money for working. Exactly. And this is the problem that they're going to face. He's and an what idiot, that man. Um, is that if we go back to the division of the way in which workers add value and, and create value... Um, on those occasions when they do have jobs to go to, mm-hmm. um, then what would happen if, yeah, just as a kind of thought experiment, if all of the cheaper goods from everywhere in the world weren't coming into the United States anymore, if you put a barrier up, as you said, all of those costs of goods would go up. But it's not just the cost of goods that go up. What that means is that the cost of labour power goes up. Mm that the thing that we have to sell, the only thing that under a capitalist system we are left to be able to sell, which is our labour power. So that if all of the... If you can't get those cheap goods anymore, then the socially necessary costs of reproducing labour power, not just on a daily basis, but on a generational basis, all of that begins to increase and puts enormous pressure both on the workers and then... The workers get stroppy and they put the pressure onto their employers for higher wages. Now, this is um, standard procedure. There's nothing unusual about this in the way in which the capitalist system has been able to operate. But what has happened um, in the US in the last 25 years or so is that the capitalists have done very well out of... Well, some of them have done very well out of offshoring all of all of the production. Yes, uh, that's right. So, and to take that away, which is which is in a, in a sense the kind of rhetorical version of Trump's changes to the world trade system. If you took that away, a lot of the well, the working class supporters who he who, who he managed to collect are going to find that their cost of living will have to go up. Began to go up. That's right. But but they but won't also, have the money to pay for it. So, But also some of the corporates who might have supported him as well ah. are going to find that they're under a lot of pressure from their workers because they simply cannot survive anymore. And there's going to be more pressure because a lot of the people in America who do have those $5 an hour jobs survive partly because they can buy cheap goods and partly because they get food stamps. Yes, right. Um, it, you know, it is an extraordinary subsidy that the US government pays to the corporates by providing food stamps for people who don't earn enough, even though they work perhaps 50 or 60 hours a week. Yeah, and I presume so, those food stamps can are only transferable at particular corporate outlets. Well, that, yeah, I mean, you've certainly got to get, you know, they are available to, to keep you in the fundamentals. Yes, you know, just yes, yes. To keep you going. But it will be for, for supermarkets. It won't be for corner stores. Well, no. But it's... Well, I was going to get round to the biggest of those, which is Mr Walmart. Yeah, that's now, right. I mean, 
I mean, the people who would be the, the big corporation that that had really been the firing line first out of that change would indeed be Walmart, hmm. because they and a couple of the others are the ones who have, who really flourish on bringing in and selling these you know cheaper goods from around the world. And my American friends tell me they are of good quality. Mm-hmm. You aren't actually buying shoddy stuff. Well, no, they've become the main order of the day. Just to let listeners to know that they're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and we're talking to Humphrey McQueen about the state of the uh, the world's financial, uh, p- potentially, uh, what's going to happen in the future. But uh, I was interested that um, the uh, capitalist system, the, the system in before the uh, 19th, at the end of the 19th century, they uh, had this thing going, you know, with all the manufacturing and all the rest of it. But what they were finding was that uh, there'd be this cycle, I think, about 15 years. They'd be going along gangbusters and then it would uh, go into a depression and it was a regular cycle and they didn't know how to regulate the machine to in order to get, give it a bit more longevity. Now, a whole range of things happened in the 20th century, and one of the most important things, of course, was ensuring by the end of the 20th century that most people were living on credit. So, yes. what is it, a dollar fifty for every dollar that an Australian makes is debt? That's right. Yeah. So, ultimately... Uh, some of these rejiggings that uh, the people in uh, America are doing or hoping that they're going to be able to do, it's not looking promising, is it, really? Well, as you say, consumer debt um, really was the the true Keynesian revolution. Mm-hmm. That's right. When people talk about, you know, you know, I mean, certainly welfare expenditure... Uh, and government expenditure and on armaments and things in the post-war period all played a part. That's right. You can't pretend it wasn't there. But the thing that really kept the system going um, has been the development of the whole of the mass marketing system in which consumer credit is one of the important parts. Oh, most important Um, part. Yeah, and advertising is really the least important part. That's right. Because once you're... once you're like it's like a horse being with a halter on its neck. Once it's been tied down, it's for good. Yeah. Well, you know, and people, you know, and there is, you know, there are kind of different kinds of consumer debt you go into. One of them is to buy your own house. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's been, you know, I mean, people don't look upon that as consumer debt in one sense. And then there's the, the then there's the you know, the purchase of refrigerators and big items. The real problem become for people, and that was when you got to the crisis point, when people were getting consumer debt to put food on the table. That's right. Um, and, you know, when it gets to that point... Now, out of 2008, a lot of people around the world paid off as much of their debt as they possibly could. But um, as the time's gone on, of course... People either forget about the problems that arose last time or, as you were rightly suggesting, they can't live on the amount that they're being paid. Um, Therefore, they then start to get the credit cards out again. The Um, thing that also worries me is that, aside from personal debt, is the fact that although the Australian banks, they weren't exposed in the same way to those kind of faulty 
bonds that they couple together, they are up to the eyeballs in mortgage debt. And if people were unable to pay their mortgages back, I think that would be a huge problem for the Australian banking system. Well, people point out, of course, to get back to our friends, the Chinese, is that as the Chinese government is screwing down on its own population, saying what, how much they can spend outside the country and what they can pay, yeah. there's been a concern in the last couple of weeks that you know, like 25,000 Chinese who have bought um, commercial investment properties in Australia won't be able to pay for them. Ah, interesting. So the top end of that market, which is, you know, I mean, they come in all cashed up. Um, they um, you know, buy a million-dollar house and push up the price of all the other houses, and that keeps it up for the time being. So, indeed, um, the, the whole of that mortgage belt, um, all the way back to the banks, um, is something that you know, even some of the bankers are beginning to talk about. It's something that we'll be concerned about. <laughs> well, there um, you go. It must be really happening. Uh, yeah. what, do, now, what, what does Marx have to say about all this? Because he predicts well, this stuff, the, doesn't he? Well, one of the things he says is that the third point I want to get around to, whether any of this is actually going to create many more jobs inside the United States. Um, and let's take the tax cuts question first. Um, now, let's assume that, it, you know, that that the first bit of it's going to operate. He gets the tax cuts through the Congress. Um, the money goes to the big US corporates. They're all now cashed up. What do they do with it? They go well, on holidays. Well, they've been on a big holiday for a long time in terms of not investing in new productive capacity. Well, because there's no, uh, there's no, they don't get any return, no interest well, rates. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we are in a crisis of excess capacity. I mean, that's where it all started. There was overproduction. There was the capacity to produce much, much more than it was possible to sell around the world. That's right. So if you give them more money to invest, you do run into it. Now, there are times in the world history, of course, in which the more money the corporates get, the more they will invest and the more jobs they'll create. This is not one of those times. Yeah, and there's no connection between real value, you know, something real... And all this play money. Well, that's well, one thing that Marx did say about financial capital is fictitious capital. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> fictitious capital, I mean, I'm, <laughs> up on my website, there's a 13,000-word article expelling, spelling out exactly what Marx meant by fictitious capital. Um, to, you know, and <laughs> I don't think we should start going down there this morning <laughs> in the last five minutes. But what is relevant to the fictitious capital question is when there's no chance of making money by investing and going through all that painful business of having to deal with workers and get them to work for you and get the money and then sell the product, what the capitalist then tries to do is, as Mark says, and this is the fictitious capital bit in part, to make money out of money. And that's the stock market. That's right. Um, the big casino, you invest in bonds and you move the money around, you play these kind of games um, with that without adding real value to it. Um, and that's what they would do. If you, if you give them all this tax money back, um, there's a, you know, there are probably some areas of investment, that, that you know, real investment that they would, could go in for, but the bigger and better chance is it will do what the quantitative easing did 
which was to not put money into people's pockets so they could actually buy things, but they handed it across to Goldman Sachs. Yeah, yeah, so it's nice for them, but it, 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 what, what is in it for everyone else, basically? Well, Nothing. Well, probably even a kind of zero to minus for oh, no. everybody else. Like you even know, worse. It'll, start to take, it'll, it'll, it'll start to take it away. I mean, if they do invest... What chances are there that they're going to invest inside the United States? <laughs> well, they're only interested in themselves. So, you know, the the problem is, is that if you want to actually kickstart something, you actually have a focus, you have to have a focus on the general good. And they seem to have had a lobotomy when it comes to that. Well, you know... I don't think the capitalist system ever really functions on the basis of looking after the general good. Uh, what they do is to look after themselves, and in some kind of way, if we struggle hard enough, we can make them. Uh, we, you know, we can force them to to give back a part of what we've given them in the first place. And so they, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. They wouldn't give a crust to a, a starving man. Well, that's that's certainly well. Yes. Might loan them a crust. Certainly not have the system work. Yeah, loan them a crust. (laughs) Interest. Now, so, but let's get to something else that Marx makes a lot of importance of in the analysis of how the capitalist system works. One of the reasons why it produces so much is that it replaces living human labour with various forms of machinery. And that is the way in which the system has been driven forward for 250 years. So if you give the corporates all this extra money to invest, what are they going to do? Are they going uh, to invest robotics. In, well, robotics, more automated production. Uh, so even if they do find ways, places to invest it that are likely to return a big rate of profit to them, that is, by definition, or you know, areas in which the quantity of human living labour will be smaller than the quantity of the dead labour that's embodied in the machines, and that's the key that Marx can let us help to understand about this. So that on all of these grounds, um, the real costs that are going to come from pushing up um, the cost of imports if they go ahead with the trade war, then. Is there anywhere in a time of excess capacity for capital to invest and to make a profit? And if there is, then it's almost certain to be where there is heavy investment in heavy machinery and automation and robots and all of that, so that all of these jobs that have been promised um, are not really likely to turn up in the rust belt um, of the United States. Where they would turn up, perhaps, is down in the ununionized South, because not only have the jobs moved offshore, they've moved to the non-unionised areas so that they can screw the workers and get even more of the surplus value out of them. Oh, it's a terrible... This is a terrible prognosis that you're putting forward, Humphrey. Well, it's, the prog- it's the prognosis that Marx put forward 150 years ago. And it's not even... I mean, it's a diagnosis mm. of how the system actually operates. And that's why I think it's important at any time, but in the year building up to the 150th anniversary, that we go back and really make a close study of what Marx tells us about the dynamics of the capitalist system Um, Mm. and get beyond the kind of, you know, sort of 
slogans out of Marx and actually see what those, how those things truly operate. Well, you know, we talked about this a couple of months ago about getting reading groups together um, and discussion well, groups. Well, well, yeah, but I think if we, the discussion needs to be, I mean, part of it needs to be around what Marx is actually telling us in those volumes of capital. Um, it's hard work. Um, you know, to, you know, you've really got to you've really got to settle down and concentrate and read hard and talk and share these ideas and be able to clarify them and connect them as we've been trying to do this morning, as Marx always tried to do. Engels said he waited to the last moment, looking in the newspapers for further evidence of what he was saying. He always very much part of the immediate in explaining how these long-term dynamics, what are the structural features of the capitalist system, truly come into operation. And that's that's really part of the battle. I fear that a lot of the things that we used to know, for example, you know, the key one, there's no such thing as a fair day's pay under capitalism. The, mm. you know, and to understand why that is the case is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, and as we go on next year, we might actually start the year with a session on what is exploitation? Because <laughs> I hear a lot of people yeah, it's very talk important. about it and they have truly no idea. They talk about it in a moral sense, not in a... a very much in a moral sense. sense. Or they just think, oh, it's only the 7-Eleven workers who are exploited. <laughs> well, yes, they are, mm. but they're not the only ones. We all are. Otherwise, there would not be capitalism. Yes. Well, so, uh, as a Christmas present, yeah. <laughs> don't forget to look up the quarterly report for the Bank for International Settlements. They'll give us a report on what the big bankers think has happened in the last three months. Um, that'll be out just in time for New Year. Uh, and we'll be back to talk about it and Marx's capital and other things in 2017. Thank you very much for contributing to Solidarity Breakfast for this 2016 year, Humphrey. Well, thank you for the opportunities to get me to think about these and to be able to talk with you and to get some ideas out there for the class struggle. Yeah, thanks, thanks Humphrey. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Humphrey McQueen. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite amazing how Marx, with all those grey cells of his... Uh, was uh, not looking through a crystal ball. He was just uh, dissecting, connecting, yeah, connecting the economy, the dots. yeah, connecting looking at the dots. commodities, yeah, finding oh. the internal dynamics. Well, that's the end for today. Solidarity Breakfast. We're beginning in the summer season, and I was just telling Kim that uh, usually we do a best of over the next four Saturdays, but actually we've been scurrying around, and an awful lot of it is new material. So tune in over the summer break and uh, listen to words of wisdom from Solidarity Breakfast, uh, politics with your Wheaties, or whatever it is that you eat in the morning, probably smashed avocado and that's why you can't buy a house <laughs> <laughs> anyway who did we speak to we we went and had a listen to uh the uh some of the bits and pieces from the eureka metal uh investages uh, invested i can't say the word the giving of the eureka medals on december the third and uh, then we spoke to uh, cassandra goldie who is the um ceo, chief, CEO um, of acos about mm. these debt Notices that are being issued to former and current Centrelink holders. Is that the right word? 
Yes. Absolutely outrageous. And then we talked to Humphrey, which was great. And we're going to go out with, um, oh, the rest of that. Something has changed because it's so lovely. And uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. So sayonara, baby. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.